The following podcast contains explicit language. If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. The facts are stubborn things. They did hack into this campaign. That shows that we have a deeply insecure president who understands that the noose is tightening because of this Russia investigation. And that's why I believe he has let Jim Comey go. Hello and welcome to TrumpCast, the show about the man who says he's the victim of a witch hunt. Wait, witch hunt? The hunt for Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Boy, has this show been hard to produce lately. We try to respond to the news, but by the time we're ready to post a new TrumpCast, the news is history because there's new news that's even more deplorable and catastrophic for the administration than the old news from a few hours before. The Trump presidency was in pretty bad shape a week ago, but now it seems to have moved into a new phase of all-out, 24-7 self-destruction. And what's amazing about it is that it's completely voluntary self-destruction, a cascade of unforced errors. Any idiot could have told Donald Trump not to fire former FBI Director James Comey. But only an idiot like his son-in-law Jared Kushner could have advised him that it would play well with the Democrats. So Trump had a little help on that one. But I don't think anyone other than Trump on his own, without advice from anybody, could have been boneheaded enough to admit to Lester Holt that his real reason for firing Comey was to squelch the Russia investigation. Those comments prompted Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to name a special counsel. And who prompted Trump to brag to the Russian visitors in his office about his great top-secret ISIS informer? thereby blowing the informer for the Israelis and for us? No one would ever tell him to do that, of course. When we someday have an inquest into the Trump presidency, it's going to be hard to avoid the conclusion of aggravated suicide. And that inquest got a little closer on Wednesday with the appointment of former FBI Director Robert Mueller as special counsel to investigate the Trump-Russia connection. To talk about Mueller, I'm joined by the journalist Garrett Graff. My guest today is Garrett Graff. He's a writer for Wired Magazine and the author of a very relevant book, The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War, much of which is about Bob Mueller. Garrett, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So let's let's go all the way back. I mean, you are, I think, the closest thing uh, Bob Mueller has to a biographer, right? Yeah, I started writing about him in 2008 uh, uh, when he'd been FBI director then for about seven years and ended up writing that book that that you mentioned, The Threat Matrix, which came out in 2011 and is probably the closest thing that exists to his biography. So just at a at a personality level, what's what's he like? I mean, he's not he he, he comes across as a as a stolid gray bureaucrat of integrity, which is of course a fine thing. But um, he must have a personality. What's he like? He has a much better sense of humor than you might expect from seeing him or uh, listening to him talk in the press. But he is uh, very much sort of what you see. He is a, you know, ramrod straight former Marine Princeton graduate and sort of of a sort of breed and generation that you don't see that much in public life anymore of sort of a patrician 
public servant, uh, you know, dedicated to the people. Yeah. You have a piece out in Politico magazine, um, an in-depth piece about Mueller, which which I was just reading. And one thing I did not know about him, he was in John Kerry's class in prep school. Of course, he went to prep school. But then, like Kerry, he went to Vietnam. He was in the Marines. I always think that's an interesting fact about people from that generation because realistically, they had the option if they were from that class background and had that kind of privilege, they had the option of not going to Vietnam. Yeah, and actually, uh, you know, so Bob Mueller joined the Marines uh, actually sort of in the mid-1960s before Vietnam became quite the cultural and political flashpoint that it later did. And he joined in part, uh, and, and this is, you know, sort of an important thing to understand about him, because of a classmate of theirs at Princeton who was a couple of years older who had volunteered to go to Vietnam and was actually killed in action. And that that model of service and sacrifice was something that actually inspired Mueller and a couple of other classmates to join. Mueller went over there, led an infantry rifle platoon, uh, received a, a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star with Valor for his role in combat. And it was a very formative experience for him in terms of, you know, that Marine ethos and that sort of leadership style that he carried with him straight through to the FBI. So so Mueller, the, I mean, the key moment in his career is that he became the director of the FBI a week before September 11th, 2001, and was, was thrown into this maelstrom in Washington after the attacks. Was he prepared for that? And what did he, how did he change the FBI because of it? That's absolutely, uh, you know, the most important moment in his time as FBI director. But actually, I would say that there's one moment that's, I think, more important and more indicative of his career and who he is, which is he spent the 1980s uh, working his way up to be assistant attorney general for the criminal division of the Justice Department, the head of the entire criminal division for the entire Justice Department nationwide uh, under the Bush 41 administration. And then he spent only a few months in private practice afterwards, which is sort of the typical Washington path, as you know well. And then he got so fed up with private practice that he tossed the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, who at that time, uh, of all people, was Eric Holder, into letting him come back to be a junior homicide prosecutor in the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. And so he went from the top of this 30,000-person division down to something that is akin to basically the job that you get about two or three years out of law school just because he's sort of that dedicated to prosecuting and to justice. Now, of course, that is the path that then sets him on uh, where you went, which is uh, becoming FBI director eventually on September 4th, 2001. So his, uh, his Twitter bio says, loves putting bad guys in jail, does not love being a corporate lawyer. Yeah, yes, that, is, that, that would be exactly his, his Twitter bio. Um, and then as he ends up, uh, as you say, sort of stepping into the FBI on September 4th, um, I learned in the course of writing about him 
that actually he was on the morning of September 11th sitting in his first briefing on Al-Qaeda when the planes hit the World Trade Center. And he was sort of diving into what he thought was a job mostly focused on drugs, gangs, and white-collar prosecution. And instead, he uh, got plunged into this maelstrom, as you said, of the counterterrorism world. And the huge criticism of the FBI. I mean, g- going back, you know, there there was the huge issue was w- the warnings the FBI had received, and there was what's her name in the Minneapolis office who'd sent the the yep. memo that had been ignored. And how did he deal with that? I mean, he wasn't re- having been there a week. He surely had no responsibility himself. But this organization was very much under attack while it was dealing with this threat that had it underwater. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's sort of a, a good point, which is, I think, sort of one of the things that ended up working to the FBI's advantage was the fact that he took over a week before 9-11. I mean, on the one hand, it was the worst possible timing for him. I mean, he was like meeting people for the first time on 9-11. But at the same time, you know, he couldn't be he could clearly not be held responsible for the things that came before uh, unlike, for instance, George Tennant, who had been the CIA director for a number of years before 9-11 and was Mueller's counterpart at the CIA in the early Bush administration. And so, you know, he was sort of instantly plunged into all of these cycles of retribution, whereas Mueller was able to sort of skate above that. Yeah. So flash forward a few years ago, famous story that, that didn't come out at the time, but that you've written about about John Ashcroft in the hospital under pressure from the White House and from Dick Cheney's office to sign this reauthorization of a program that James Comey, relevant name here, thought was illegal. And he summoned Bob Mueller. What was that all about? What was their relationship? What was going on? So they had known each other for a number of years, sort of worked together in these high ranks in the Justice Department and after 9-11 when James Comey was the deputy attorney general. But he really sort of turned to Mueller during this this incident, which focused around an NSA surveillance program codenamed Stellar Wind that was effectively the Justice Department decided that this program it was collecting too much intelligence on Americans domestically and was unconstitutional and illegal. And the White House was really pushing to keep this program going. And they put it squarely on Jim Comey's shoulders. And you know, Dick Cheney told him in not so many words, you know, if this program ends, the blood will be on your hands when Americans die. And Jim Comey enlisted Bob Mueller because for basically the same reason that he has been now named the special counsel, which is he he has this reputation in Washington as someone sort of beyond reproach. There is no hidden agenda or partisanship or politicization in Bob Mueller's bones. And so if Bob Mueller is objecting to something, you can generally know that he's doing it for the right reasons. But basically, it was Comey's judgment that Mueller was the best person to help him stand up to the Bush White House. And there was that – it was like a crazy showdown, right, between the FBI agents who were backing up Mueller and Comey and the Secret Service 
there with the the people who who uh, from the White House Counsel's Office who wanted Ashcroft incoherent to sign this reauthorization. Yeah, you've got it exactly right. And and I think that this is probably the strangest moment in modern American political history, at least until maybe a couple of the things that we have seen <laughs> over the last couple of weeks, where you have the Secret Service agents who are accompanying Andy Card and Alberto Gonzalez to this hospital room visit. And Comey was afraid that those agents were going to throw him out of the room and that they were going to try to isolate and manipulate John Ashcroft. And so he got Bob Mueller to effectively order the FBI agents who were there on Ashcroft security detail to resist. And, you know, just sort of like think through how like wacky this is. You know, you are pulling the overnight shift at GW Hospital with a basically unconscious attorney general. And, you know, you think you're probably in for the quietest night of your life. (laughs) And then the FBI director calls. And says the White House chief of staff and the Secret Service are on their way to the room. And if they try to remove the deputy attorney general, resist with force, you know, like, uh, you know, pull your guns on the Secret Service and the White House chief of staff if you have to. I mean, this is just absolutely crazy to think of mexican standoff across the uh prone body of john ashcroft no it isn't it is an amazing amazing scene and uh the the righteous one i mean is it should we be a little suspicious of the story of this guy who's always doing the right thing always standing up for principle i mean i i'm glad there's a boy scout taking on this job of investigating donald trump over over russia but is he is he pure boy scout So I have to say that he is the purest Boy Scout I have ever run across. And I tell this story in this Politico piece that you mentioned, where sort of one of his, I guess I should say his sole sartorial quirk is that he has this obsession with wearing white shirts. I wouldn't call that a quirk, Garrett. Even in Washington, that's not a quirk. (laughs) Well, it's sort of the stereotypical (laughs) G-man look, you know, the Hoover era, you know, dark suit, white shirt. And he would actually mock, uh, you know, aides or other agents who came into his office wearing, you know, a blue shirt or heaven forbid, a pink shirt. And I sort of always thought that this was sort of just him being, you know, his old ramrod Marine self. Um, And I asked him after he was director you know, what's the deal with the white shirts, man? And he actually gave this like really deeply philosophical answer about how he understood that he had been leading the FBI through this wrenching era of change and sort of converting it from this law enforcement agency into an intelligence agency focused on counterterrorism. And he thought that the white shirt tradition was important to sort of keep agents grounded in the history of the FBI and that it was sort of an opportunity to remind them that they that this was still the same FBI. And I just thought it was such a fascinating answer, both in the context of understanding sort of just how thoughtful he is about change, but also, you know, sort of 
his strangest quirk of this obsession with the white shirt. A man who thinks deeply about the whiteness of his shirts. I thought the whole point of a white shirt was you don't have to think about it. But no, that's a, that's a great, exactly. de- great detail. What can Donald Trump expect? What is Trump in for with this guy being the special prosecutor? One thing I picked up, maybe just little hints here and there, is that he might be a little slow. I mean, special counsels can take a pretty long time, but he might even among them not be the quickest to get to the bottom of it and issue indictments or issue a report. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, uh, you know, this drastically slows down what has been a very quickly unfolding scandal and crisis here in Washington. Part of this, though, so I think the bad news for Donald Trump is there is no one who will more tenaciously follow and track this investigation than Bob Mueller. Uh, Well, you're you're presuming that if, if Donald Trump's innocent, that's good news. Well, so that's what I was going to say. So I think what's interesting and the good news for Donald Trump in this is if Donald Trump is innocent and there is no there there and all of this with Russia is just a series of strange coincidences and misunderstandings, then I think that Bob Mueller might be the only person in America who could declare that Donald Trump is innocent and everyone on both sides would accept that answer. Huh. It doesn't tend to be what special prosecutors do. I mean, you couldn't be as as ramrod straight and honest as as anybody in the world. And it kind of sounds like Mueller is. But your incentives as a special prosecutor are as they are with a prosecutor are to win. You know, you win by bringing a case and you then you win by winning the case. You know, they don't they don't tend to walk away. They don't like like to walk away. Well, so so that's true to a certain extent. I don't necessarily know that that's going to be the problem or the challenge for Bob Mueller. You know, th- this might very well be the last thing that Bob Mueller ever does in public life. And so the, he has no reputation to sort of think about in the future here. He has no career path he's going to try to navigate after this. But I think that the other place where these investigations get tricky is the charges that independent prosecutors and special counsels almost always bring are pretty unrelated to what they were starting out to investigate. I mean, remember, uh, you know, Ken Starr's investigation mostly ended up being about Monica Lewinsky and the Patrick Fitzgerald uh, investigation of the Valerie Plain leak investigation, you know, ended up nailing Scooter Libby, not for being the leaker, but for obstructing the investigation. And I think so the challenge for the Trump administration is and I think this is where, you know, to draw a little bit of a inference from what we have seen in the Trump administration so far, these are not officials and campaign associates whose first instinct is to tell the truth wholly and completely. And that is not going to mix well with Bob Mueller in these investigations. It does seem like poetic justice. I mean, Trump fired the head of the FBI. He shouldn't have fired. And now the thing he was hoping to avoid, which is a real and thorough investigation, he's getting from Comey's buddy, who is a fantastic prosecutor and the straightest guy in the world. Yeah, I I said in my Politico article that this is sort of 
I think the rough equivalent of Donald Trump in a bar having a dispute over movie trivia and then challenging Usain Bolt to settle it with a hundred yard dash. I mean, this is not (laughs) Donald Trump's playing field anymore. And instead, he is going to be fighting a battle on a landscape where Jim Comey and Bob Mueller have spent their entire careers. Does Trump have a legitimate complaint about conflict of interest that Mueller and Comey are buddies and that even, you know, you, there's a could be a revenge factor here? I don't necessarily think you're going to see revenge factor. I do think you're going to see an instance where you know, Bob Mueller, not because of who Jim Comey is, but because of Jim Comey's sort of tradition and Jim Comey's instincts is going to have a pretty good set of evidence that is going to interest Bob Mueller. I mean, these these memos that appear to exist of of Jim Comey's interactions with Donald Trump are, you know, part and parcel of Department of Justice culture. You know, that's how you build an FBI investigation. That's how you build a federal prosecution. I think that that's going to be something that Bob Mueller is going to put a lot of weight in. I've been speaking to Garrett Graff. He's a writer for Wired Magazine, and you should read his piece in Politico Magazine online, What Donald Trump Needs to Know About Bob Mueller and Jim Comey. Garrett, thanks for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced today by Jordan Bell, subbing in for Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is managing producer. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. We had help today from Mathim Shapiro in the Washington studio. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.